Good morning, everyone. I uh, hope you had a very Merry Christmas, and uh, I can't tell you how honoring and humbled it is and nervous it is to be, have this opportunity to share a teaching from God's Word. But before we get into our teaching, I want us to do something that I don't think we do near enough. And so uh, we are so blessed in our church to have Adam Robinson as our senior pastor. I mean, every week, week in and out, he blesses us with these incredible sermons, and he does so much more that most of you probably aren't aware of with all the meetings and the plannings and, and counseling people. And so we're truly blessed to have Adam as our senior pastor. Could you join me in telling Adam how much we appreciate him? So uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, be turning to the Gospel of Luke in the seventh chapter. We're going to take a look at these verses 31 through 35. So Luke chapter 7, verses 31 through 35 in just a minute. Now, uh, as you're turning there, if you are my age or older, then this was the phone that you grew up with right here, the rotary phone, right? And so you couldn't put that in your pocket and take it with you. You couldn't check your emails or, or uh, Google de- you know, directions to some destination. Um, and so we live in a much different day today than we did w- when I grew up. I saw this YouTube video recently that I thought was really humorous. So these two teenagers were presented with a phone like this, a rotary phone, and they were given four minutes to uh, call a specific number, and they weren't able to do it. They couldn't figure out how to use this phone, and, and I thought that was humorous. Um, But I think there's two takeaways from that. One is that our knowledge of things tends to get lost with time as as we don't use them as much anymore. And the second one is that sometimes phrases related to those things can persist or carry on even though our knowledge of them uh, no longer exists. So I think we see this with the rotary phone because I think people still refer to dialing a number. Like if you get a wrong call on your cell phone, you might say, well, you know, what number did you dial? And yet, nobody dials numbers anymore, right? We push numbers, we poke numbers. Nobody dials numbers, but we still say that. Now, if we go back uh, in time a little bit further, I think this becomes even more apparent. And I just wanted to share with you some phrases that I think you'll be very familiar with. So if somebody's new to the job, we say that they need to learn the ropes. Or you might have heard somebody say, I was taken aback. Or you need to hang in to the bitter end. Or somebody might be described as a loose cannon. Or somebody described as three sheets to the wind. So... uh, (laughs) You're all familiar with these phrases probably, but you might not be familiar with the origin of these phrases, where they came from. So these all come from a time, a few generations before ours, a couple hundred years ago, before the invention of the steam engine and before the invention of the combustion engine, when our civilization, our culture was a maritime civilization. And so travel and goods and services uh, were moved about. It was accomplished by sailing vessels. And so I just wanted to explain some of those terms. So some of these ships, as you see in this picture, had a lot of sails. Now, each one of these sails had to be raised or lowered or held in place by a specific rope. So these ships had a lot of ropes. So if you were new to the ship or new on the job, if you will, one of the first things you had to do is you had to learn the ropes. Now, another, another example comes from this one. Sometimes the wind would shift directions suddenly and unexpectedly, and the sail could be blown straight back against the mast. And that was referred to as the sail being a back. Now, what that would cause is it would cause a sudden jolt to the ship as, as you had this sudden deceleration. And it was actually dangerous because the, the mast was in, in danger of being uh, broken. So to be taken aback is to use this term of this sudden jolt that happens when the wind were to suddenly blow the sail back against the mast. Here's another one. So the post that the anchor line was, t- was tied to was called the bitter. 
And so if the anchor line was all the way out to its end, the, the end of the rope was the bitter end. If you're, all right, and here's another one right here. So cannons had a really tremendous recoil. And so they had to be uh, tied very securely in place. And so if you had a loose cannon, that was a very dangerous situation. If you were standing behind a cannon when it, when it went off, it could cause some significant injury. So a loose cannon was a very dangerous situation. And here's the last one. So sails were referred to as sheets. And if you had a sail that got away from its ropes and was flopping in the wind, it was said to be to the wind, a sheet to the wind. Now, if you had three of these... Then, then you would lose control of your ship. So somebody who had lost control could be described as three sheets to the wind. All right, so the reason I wanted to share these with you is because I think in our passage today, um, it seems like perhaps there's something that's been lost to us. You can imagine if we go all the way back 2,000 years ago to the time of Christ, that there are many things because of disuse that we have lost the knowledge of, and yet phrases related to them carry on or persist because they're written in the Scriptures. So let's take a look at these verses right here. So in verse 31, Jesus, says, Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? So Jesus is looking for a comparison for that generation, the people that were living in his day. And this is the comparison that he makes. He goes on to say, They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. So what does that mean? I mean, that's sort of puzzling. It almost seems like something is lost. So the comparison that he makes is to compare the people of his day to children. Perhaps you have one group who is, who's shouting out, you know, we played the pipe and you didn't dance. And then you have another group, you know, calling back, well, we sang a dirge and you didn't cry. So why would children be saying that? And how is that a comparison for the people of his day? So it seems like something is sort of lost here. But whatever this means, Jesus used it as a lead-in to his main point, which we see in the next two verses. So this is Jesus' main point, then, he wants to make. He says, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, this is Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. So Jesus, the Son of Man, came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So let's pause and see if we can understand what's being said here. So we'll start with John the Baptist. It says that he came neither, neither eating bread nor drinking wine. Now the first part of that perhaps is a reference to that John the Baptist and his, and his disciples uh, commonly participated in the spiritual discipline of fasting. So we see this in this verse from Matthew 9, 9 verse 14 right here. It says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, this is Jesus, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So from this verse we can, we can know that John the Baptist's disciples often participated in this Spiritual discipline of fasting. So neither eating bread perhaps is a reference to that. Now we'll look at the second part, nor drinking wine. Some scholars believe that this is a reference to a vow of holiness that John the Baptist was living out for his entire life. And so to understand this, we have to go way back into the books of the law. So in the book of Numbers, in the sixth chapter, there is this vow of holiness that could be taken. So this, this is the verses here. This is number 6, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from, and it goes on to tell the requirements of that vow. So this word here, dedication, means to be set apart or sanctified for the purpose of being holy to the Lord. So this was a vow of holiness that somebody could enter into. It was entered into um, by, for a specific period of time. It could be six weeks, six months, six years. And during that time, 
there were three things they had to abstain from that the rest of this chapter goes on to explain. So the first thing was they had to avoid anything that would make them unclean. The second one was they had to not cut their hair during this period of time. So let's say it was six months. Then they would let their hair grow for six months. At the end of the six months, they would cut their hair, and they would bring those hair clippings along with a specified sacrifice to the priest at the temple as an offering to the Lord. The third thing they had to abstain from was anything related to the vine. So they wouldn't eat grapes, raisins. They wouldn't drink grape juice. They wouldn't drink wine. So the three requirements of this special vow of dedication, this vow of holiness to the Lord. Some scholars believe that John the Baptist was living out the requirements of this vow of holiness for his entire life. And so this is the scene here. John the Baptist's father was a priest, Zachariah, and one day he was uh, fulfilling his duties in the temple and he encountered the archangel Gabriel. And Gabriel is going to tell him that his wife, Elizabeth, who was barren, is going to give birth to a son. And and he's going to tell him that he's going to name that son John. And he goes on to say this. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. So this part that I've highlighted here, never drinking wine or fermented drink, was one of the requirements of this special vow of holiness. So some scholars believe that John the Baptist was living out this this vow of holiness for his entire life, that it was prescribed for him even before he was born by the angel Gabriel. So perhaps in our passage here, when it says, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, this was a way of saying that John the Baptist was living this very holy life before the Israelites of his day, and that he fasted often. Now, this should have been revered and respected by the Israelites of his day, but the Israelites of his day rejected him, and they claimed that he had a demon. And so we see this false claim being levied against John the Baptist, even though he's living this holy life. And then we have Jesus here, who's also living a very holy life before the Israelites. He is not living out the vow of the Nazarite. He has a different approach. And he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is why he came. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, he says on one occasion. But Jesus was not a glutton and a drunkard any more than John the Baptist was demon-possessed. These are false claims levied against him by the religious leaders of their day. So what we see in this verse here is Jesus is saying both he and John the Baptist live a very holy life before the Israelites of their day, and they were both rejected. And so that's the main point Jesus is trying to make. And that confusing lead-in was to somehow make a comparison as a lead-in to this. Now we'll look at the last verse here. And so another puzzling statement by Jesus. He says, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. So what does that mean, right? I mean, so wisdom here is personified as this woman who has children, offspring, the things that she has produced. And somehow she is proved right or correct by those And so what does that mean? It's a puzzling statement. And why is Jesus saying it here? And so that's the passage that I would like us to try to figure out a little bit. Um, Now, this is is my third time to have this opportunity to, to appear before you. So I thought I would share something personal about me, something that you obviously wouldn't know. And so here it is. Um... I'm a puzzler. Uh, I enjoy solving puzzles, all kind of puzzles. I mean, crossword puzzles, Sudoku, even jigsaw puzzles. I enjoy even solving jigsaw puzzles. Actually, yesterday for Christmas, my wife Beth gave me a jigsaw puzzle as one of my presents. So I'm a nerd, and and I I like to do puzzles, right? Um, Now, my reason for sharing this with you, actually, we we had a Christmas tradition when our children were little. Each Christmas, we would put together a Christmas puzzle, and we would work on it all the days of Advent with the plan of hoping to have it completed by Christmas morning. Now, the reason I'm sharing all this with you is because I would sort of like us to approach this passage that we've just looked at sort of like a puzzle, if you will, like we would a jigsaw puzzle. So we're going to 
put a puzzle together today as a church. I don't think we've done that before. So, so let's do that. All right. So if we were to approach this as a jigsaw puzzle, the first thing we would do is we would try to find all those edges, the straight edge pieces, right? And the two that had the two straight edges that make up the corner. And then we would assemble all of those. Or, or at least that's how I do it. I mean, I've never read the rule book on putting together puzzles, and I just assume everybody does it that way. Do you guys do it that way? I mean, that's what I do. All right, so what would that do? That would give us the border or the frame into which all those other pieces would somehow fit. So then what is the frame into which our focal passage fits? Well, the frame here that our fo- focal passage is going to fit into is the setting. Now, many times Jesus would say comments, he would make teachings, or he would make his comments in, some, in, in, in response to something that had just happened in the setting. For example, on one occasion, uh, the Pharisees were scoffing at Jesus because he was welcoming sinners. And that caused him to tell three parables of the lost. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost son that we call the parable of the prodigal son, all in response to them scoffing at him for welcoming sinners. And the, and the meaning of all of that was that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So let's take a look then at the setting for, for our text here. And so we have to back all the way up to verse 18 here. And this is where we start seeing the setting for our, for our passage. So it says, John's disciples told him about all of these things. And calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So what are these things that John the Baptist has just been told? Well, the 17 verses leading up to our passage here, there are two miracles that are described that Jesus performed. The first one was, was done in the, in the town of Capernaum. And there was this Roman centurion. He was a soldier over 100 men. He had authority over 100 men. And he had a, a servant who was ill. And the religious leaders came to Jesus and said, we would like you to go and heal this centurion's servant. Jesus agrees to do this, and he's on his way to do this when the centurion himself sends one of his men to Jesus to say, hold up, I'm not even worthy for you to come into my house. But I know that you have authority just like I have authority. I give orders for men to do things, and they do those things. So I know that if you just say the word, that my servant will be healed. Now, when Jesus hears that, he is taken aback, if you will, by the great faith of this Roman. And he says, I have not seen this kind of faith even among the Israelites. And so he does it. He says the word and heals this man from afar. The second miracle is, is, uh, is in a town of Nain. There is a widow there who had a, whose only son had passed away. And so Jesus comes across this funeral procession. They're carrying out the dead body of this widow's only son. He stops the procession and heals the young man from the dead, raises him from the dead, and restores him to his mother. So these are the things that John the Baptist has just been told, that Jesus has the authority to heal people from a distance, even just by saying the word, and he can raise people from the dead. So, whoa, right? I mean, these are, whoa, these are amazing things. And so he, so he calls two of his disciples to, to send them to, the, to Jesus to say, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Let's talk about where John is at this moment. It turns out that John the Baptist is in prison when he sends these disciples to Jesus. John the Baptist was put in, was put in prison because he had confronted the ruler of the area where he was ministering, a man named Herod Antipas, with this illegal and adulterous relationship. He had taken his brother's wife as his own. So John the Baptist confronts him with that, and to shut him up, Herod Antipas puts John the Baptist in prison. And we can know that, that he's in prison right here at this moment by looking at the parallel passages to our passage, which is found in Matthew 11. It says, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Let's talk about this phrase, the one who is to come. 
This is a phrase that is referencing the long-awaited Messiah. So in the Hebrew Scriptures, there are a lot of messianic prophecies, prophecies where God promised to send his Messiah to the aid of his people. And I wanted to just take a look at some of those. It had been 400 years since the last prophet was on the scene, so this, pro- this Messiah was the long-awaited Messiah, the one who was to come. So there are two prophecies in, in, the, in the prophecies of Isaiah that I want us to talk about just for a minute. So in Isaiah 35, and I've abbreviated these three verses so we could see it on one slide, but it says this, Your God will come. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute, mute tongue shout for joy. So here we see this verse in Isaiah where God promises the Messiah and we're told that his, his arrival will be accompanied by these incredible miracles of healing blindness and deafness and paralysis and muteness. The other verse from Isaiah that I wanted to share with you is a verse that Jesus quoted himself. So very early in his ministry, just after his baptism in the Jordan and his time of temptation in the wilderness, Jesus made his way to his hometown of Nazareth. He went to the synagogue on that particular Sabbath, and he was handed the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolled it to the 61st chapter and read the first two verses. This is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Now, last week, Adam explained to us the meaning of the Hebrew word Messiah and its Greek equivalent, Christ. The word Messiah literally means the anointed of the Lord or the Lord's anointed, the person who was anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. And it wasn't unique to Jesus. There were prophets that had the anointing of the Lord's Spirit on them, and so they were referred to as Messiahs as well. So this person in this passage is the Lord's anointed, the person who has been anointed by the Lord. He is the Messiah. Just after reading these verses in his home, in his home synagogue in, in Nazareth, Jesus rolls up this scroll of Isaiah, hands it back to the attendants, and he says, Today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Basically, he just proclaimed to his hometown that he was the Messiah, the Lord's anointed. Now back to our passage here. So this is what the, the one who is to come represents. It represents this long-awaited Messiah. So John the Baptist has heard these incredible things about Jesus, and he sends his disciples to him to say, Are you the Messiah, or should we expect someone else? Now some scholars see some doubt here on the part of John the Baptist. Uh, and this has been debated a lot in the commentaries. I'm just going to give you my slant on it, all right? So... I think it's hard to believe that John the Baptist had any doubts that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, He was the forerunner of the Messiah. It was John the Baptist who said of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had just been told of these incredible miracles that Jesus was doing. So it's hard to believe that John the Baptist had any doubts that Jesus was the Messiah. So then why does he send these disciples to him? And so here's a possibility to think about. Perhaps... John the Baptist wanted to make sure Jesus knew where he was. He's in prison at this time. And perhaps he was very anxious for him to fulfill one of the roles of the Messiah. Remember that verse we just looked at in in Isaiah 61. One of the things the Messiah would do would proclaim freedom for prisoners. So John in prison, I'm sure he was very anxious for Jesus to fulfill this role of the Messiah. So perhaps that's what's going on here. So let's look at our passage here. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And then we're told at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So these are some of those um, miracles that that 
Isaiah said would accompany the arrival of the Messiah. And so here's Jesus' response. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. So in other words, don't take my words for it. Let the actions speak for themselves. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. Once again, these are things that the messianic prophecy said the Messiah would do. And then he went on to say this, And the good news is proclaimed to the poor, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now perhaps Jesus' answer to John the Baptist is somewhat of a coded message here. Let's look back at that passage again from Isaiah 61. Jesus says, The good news is proclaimed to the poor. But he left off the rest of that verse there. Nothing about freeing prisoners. So perhaps then this is a coded message for John. So let's just imagine how he might have received this. So, so John the Baptist is in prison and his disciples come to him and he says, What did Jesus say? And he says, Well, he said he's doing all of these incredible healing miracles. And so John says, Yes, just like Isaiah 35 said he would. What else did he say? Well, he said that the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Yes, Isaiah 61, yes. And what else did he say? Well, that's all he said. Are you sure? Are you sure he didn't say anything about freeing prisoners? No, he didn't say anything about freeing prisoners. Uh. So, uh, so perhaps then, Jesus' answer to John the Baptist is sort of a coded message where he says, yes, I am the Messiah. The proof is that, that I'm doing the things that the Scripture said the Messiah would do, but freeing you from prison is, is not part of my mission. Now, that's a tough one. You know, why didn't Jesus free John the Baptist from prison? Um, he could have done it just by saying the word. Um, that's a tough one. But Jesus not using his supernatural powers to intervene on the behalf of John the Baptist is very similar to his not using his supernatural powers to intervene even to prevent his own suffering and his own martyrdom. So, so uh, perhaps that's got, got something to do with that. All right, so reading on it says, After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And he said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Talking about when they flocked out into the wilderness to hear the preachings of John the Baptist. So he says, basically, who did you think John the Baptist was? And then he said, a reed swayed by the wind? So what does that mean? I mean, another puzzling statement here. But whatever it means, that's not what he was. Because he says, if not, then what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes or, and indulge in luxury or in palaces. Perhaps here he's contrasting John the Baptist with the man who had put him in prison who did wear fancy clothes and lived in palaces. Then he goes on to say this. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? And here we have in a very emphatic yes. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one of whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. So John the Baptist, according to Jesus, was a prophet, and he was the forerunner of the Messiah, according to Malachi 3.1. And then Jesus says this, I tell you, among those who are born of women, there is no one greater than John. High praise for John the Baptist. He just said that John the Baptist was greater than all of the Old Testament prophets. I mean, think about these incredible prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, Ezekiel. John, Jesus has just said John was greater than all of those Old Testament prophets. High praise for John the Baptist. And then he says, and yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, did you catch that? If you have received Christ as your Savior, then you are in the kingdom of God. And Jesus just said that your position is greater than the Old Testament prophets even. So the importance of being in the kingdom of God. Reading on here, we had this uh, parenthetical statement uh, by Luke where it says, All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. 
But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. So basically, another way of saying that the religious leaders of that day had, re- had rejected Jesus and they had rejected his messenger, John the Baptist. And then that leads us in to, to uh, our, our passage. So the setting for our passage then is a discussion about how Jesus and John the Baptist were rejected by the religious rulers of his day. Now what I'd like to do is just sort of uh, provide you with some, what I'm going to call, pieces of the puzzle that we can sort of fit in here and and see if we can figure things out a little bit, see if this picture comes a little more clear for us. The first one is related to translation, all right? So the words that we're reading here were originally written in Greek, and so this is our focal text in the Greek right here. This is John 7, 31 through 35 in the Greek, Um, and I'll give you a few minutes to read through that. And... (laughs) Right. All right. So yeah, we, we, none of us probably, Adam probably knows how to read this, but the rest of us, um, we can't read this. Um, but what I wanted you to see here is that in the original Greek, there's no punctuation, there's no periods, there's no commas, and there's no quotation marks. So when you translate the Greek, when there is a quotation, where you place the quotation marks is driven by the context. So in our text here, these, and I've highlighted these red here, but these inner single quotation marks, the, the uh, translators believed that the context here was that these children in the marketplace were saying these things. But why would children say things like this? We played the pipe and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't cry. I've never heard children say these things. I, I, that's sort of lost. Now the other possibility would be that the we here represents John the Baptist and Jesus. This is in a discussion about Jesus and John the Baptist. So perhaps the we could be Jesus and John the Baptist. Now, if that were the case, then we would remove these inner quotation marks and we would take that colon and move it to the beginning of verse 32. And what we would have then is three comparisons. So he would, in comparing what's going on, he would say, you're like children crying out to each other in the marketplace. And then he would say, we, sing a, we, we played the pipe and you didn't dance. And then he would say, we sang a dirge and you didn't cry. Now let's ponder that just for a second and, and see if any of that makes sense. Let's start with the first one. So he describes the people of that day as children in a marketplace calling out to each other. So by describing them as children, perhaps he's saying that they have not matured, that they were immature in their understanding of what the Messiah was all about. And, and that's certainly true as you read through the Gospels. They really missed what the Messiah was all about. And then he says they're in a marketplace crying out to each other, calling out to each other. And so there were these two main divisions of, of Jews in that day. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as you read through the Gospels, these two groups were always arguing with each other over different interpretations of the Scripture. So perhaps then to make this comparison would be to say you're, you're, you're immature of your understanding of what the Messiah is about and all you do is sit around quarreling with each other all the time. I think that's possible. Now let's skip the second one and move on to the third one here. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. So a dirge was a song of mourning that was sung after somebody had died. Now both Jesus and John the Baptist are going to be martyred for their cause and the religious leaders of their day are not going to mourn their death. And so that would sort of make sense. But then we come to this middle one here. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. Why would Jesus say that? I mean, that's sort of a puzzling statement. Now, let me ask you if you can relate to this. Have you ever been putting a puzzle together and you're scanning all the pieces and all of a sudden one sort of catches your eye because it's sort of unique, sort of distinct, it's different than the other ones, and so you you pick that one up and you say, you know what, this one should be easy to place because it's so different, you know, and so you, you try to place it in there and you turn it every which way, but it just doesn't fit, and so what do you do? You say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set this one over here by itself and I know that if I just 
perhaps get a few more pieces in here, I'll, I'll pick that back up and it'll be easy to place. So let's treat this unique statement that it seems like we should easily understand and yet something is lost. Let's treat that like this unique piece of a puzzle that we're going to set aside and come back to later. All right, so the next piece of the puzzle that I'd like to share with you is what I'm going to call a clue. Sometimes Jesus would give a clue to help his listeners better understand what he had just said. Let me give you an example of this. So Jesus' favorite way of teaching was to tell parables. And when we first read about this in Matthew chapter 13, it says Jesus got in a boat and and he began to tell parables to the people. And the first one that he told was this one. So there was a man that went out and he sowed seed. And some of the seed fell among the hard path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell among the shallow soil and the sun scorched it. Some fell among the thorns and it was choked out. And then others fell among the good soil and it produced different amounts of fruitfulness. And so he tells them this story. And then immediately after telling this story, he says these words. He says, he who, whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, I think they all had ears, right? And so what is he saying here? So what does it mean to have ears to hear? And so what he was saying is what I just said was parabolic. There's symbolism involved. And so to have ears to hear would be to understand the symbols involved so that you can understand what he was saying. And so it was a clue that what he just said was a parable. Later, Jesus would take his disciples aside and he would tell them the symbols involved in this. He would say that he himself was the man sowing the seed. The seed was the word of God. The different conditions of the soul represented the different conditions of man's heart. Some were hard-hearted and would completely reject his word. All right, so now let's look at that last verse in our passage here. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Perhaps this is a clue that Jesus is giving us to help lead us to understand, better understand what he's just said. So how could that be a clue? Here's a possibility. There is a genre of literature known as wisdom literature. And so what are the children then of wisdom literature? What, what is it that wisdom literature has produced? Well, parables, Jesus' favorite way of teaching, would be a child of, of wisdom, if you will. So it would be Proverbs, Psalms, poetry, history, and fables. Those would all be children of literature, of the genre of wisdom literature, if you will. And so could Jesus be directing us to that? And so that leads us to the next piece of the puzzle, which is fables. Now I'm going to share with you a couple of fables that I think you're going to be very well familiar with. All right, here's the first one. There was this tortoise and a hare, and they decided to have a race. And I'm sure you're familiar with this story, right? So the hare got off to this really big lead and decided to have a rest, but he fell asleep. The tortoise plods along, and at some point the hare wakes up and he dashes to the finish line only to realize that the tortoise has already won the race. And this, a very familiar story that we share with our children, has a concluding uh, proverb that says, slow and steady wins the race. And here's another one, the boy who cried wolf. So a village uh, sent this boy out to guard the sheep And uh, he decided one day to have some fun and pull a prank. So he went yelling, help, wolf, help, wolf. And so all the villagers came out to defend against this wolf. But there was no wolf and he had a big laugh. And he habitually did this over and over again until one day there really was a wolf. And so he runs yelling, help, wolf, help, wolf. And you probably all know what happened, right? Nobody came. And this has a concluding proverb, you can't believe a liar even when he tells the truth. So these are some fables that you're very familiar with. We we share them with our children. Um, But what these have in common is they're both fables of Aesop. So we're familiar with the fables of Aesop, but you might be surprised to learn when and where Aesop lived. So it turns out that Aesop lived before the time of Christ. 
Actually, 550 years before the time of Christ. Now, that's amazing. According to historians, he was from this uh, nation that uh, was in the western half of current-day Turkey. In his day, it was called the nation of Lydia. And historians say that he was an advisor, a wise man, if you will, in the court of the king of Lydia, whose name was Choresis. And so we have Aesop living 2,500 years ago, and we still know his fables today. That's sort of amazing. Now, this might surprise you as well. Aesop is believed to have written more than 650 fables. Now, if I were to ask you how many of those you know, it would probably be a very small percentage. And so most of those have been lost to us over time. But here's something I want you to ponder. The Jews in the day of Jesus, the ones that sat at his feet when he went about and and performed his miracles and, and, and gave his teachings, would they have known Aesop's fables? Now, they were much closer in time and space than we are. And since things get lost over time, it's very possible that they would have known of Aesop's fables even more than we. Let me give you one more thing to consider. We have an incredible demand on our entertainment time. We have uh, television, radio, movies, the internet, social media, sporting events. We, have, we are just bombarded with you know, demand on our entertainment time. They didn't have all those things. So perhaps the oral retelling of fables of Aesop would have been maybe one of their main ways of entertainment, main methods of entertainment. So it's very likely that they could have known of the fables of Aesop even better than we do in our day, living 2,000 years later. And it, and it appears that as you look through the scriptures, there may be several occasions where Jesus actually makes reference to fables of Aesop. Let me mention a couple of these. So there was a fable of Aesop called the wolf in sheep's clothing. And in this fable, a wolf puts on the, the skin of a sheep and disguises himself to get into the flock and to have his way with the sheep. Now, on one occasion, Jesus is telling his followers about uh, false prophets. And he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So perhaps Jesus is referring to this fable of Aesop. Let me give you another example here. This is the verse we talked about earlier when he went to his hometown of Nazareth and he proclaimed to him that he was the Messiah. Now it turns out they rejected him as the Messiah. If you read the passage, they wanted to throw him off a cliff to his death because they thought his words were blasphemy. And so Jesus, realizing his rejection by his own home people, said a couple of things. One of the things he said was, as a prophet is never accepted in his own hometown. And the other one was, he said this, Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Now let's ponder that just for a second. If this is a proverb that they're going to one day quote to him, that means this is a proverb that they must obviously know. And so what is the source of this proverb? Now, in the Old Testament, there is a book of Proverbs. It has proverb after proverb. But if you read through it, you're not going to find this proverb. So where does this come from? It turns out this is the concluding proverb of a fable of Aesop that you're probably not familiar with. And it's called the quack frog. And so here it is. Once upon a time, a frog came forth from his hometown in the marshes and proclaimed to all the world that he was a learned physician, skilled in drugs and able to cure all diseases. Among the crowd was a fox who called out, You, a doctor? Why, how can you set up to heal others when you cannot even cure your own lame legs and blotched and wrinkled skin? Physician, heal yourself. There's the proverb that Jesus said that they would one day quote to him. So, let's look at the comparison here. So, like the frog in the fable, Jesus has come to his hometown and he has proclaimed that he is the Messiah, which Isaiah said would be able to cure all these diseases. So, he is the great physician, if you will. But like the frog in the fable, he was rejected by his hometown. So when would it be that they would quote the ending proverb of that fable? When would Jesus have an ailment from which he would need to be healed from? 
And so perhaps what he had in mind is this event three years later where with his, la- with his legs lame, if you will, from being nailed to the cross and his skin blotched, if you will, from being scourged, it says this. If I can get it to click. His chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Or in other words, if you are the Messiah, if you're the great physician, then heal yourself. And so perhaps then this is an allusion to this fable of Aesop. Let me share another one with you that, that you're probably not familiar with. And so it, it, it appears that even in the, the, the setting that lead into our passage today that Jesus might have made a reference to a fable of Aesop. So um, this is how this fable goes. It's called the oak and the reeds. So there was this big oak tree that, that grew in the marshes near all these reeds. And one day a fierce storm came up and it blew over the oak tree, uprooted it. All the, all the reeds were blown flat. Now after the storm passed, the reeds gradually stood back up. And so the oak tree said to the reeds, how is it that me, the big strong oak tree, was blown over by, uprooted by the storm and you tender little reeds survived it? To which they replied, it's because we bow down to the storm. And then when it passes, we can stand back up. So somebody that bowed down in the face of torment was said to be a reed swayed by the wind. And so in our passage, Jesus says, who did you think John the Baptist was? A reed swayed by the wind? No, no, he was not going to bow down to the torment of Herod. John the Baptist was like the strong oak tree. He was going to stand up to Herod. And like the oak tree in the fable, he would be uprooted, if you will. So we see several times where it looks like Jesus may have made some reference to a fable of Aesop in order to give illustration to his teachings or to make him more powerful. Let me share with you another fable of Aesop that you're probably not familiar with. It's called The Fisherman Piping. It's a very odd fable, and here's how it goes. A fisherman went down to the coast and he played his pipe thinking that the fish would dance, but they did not. And so sometime later, he threw out a net and he cast these fish up on the shore and then they began flopping about. And he said, your dancing is of no use now. The time with the dance was before when I played my pipe. You know, so now you die, now you perish. Um, and so you can see a parallel here with, with our passage, right? This, we played the pipe and you didn't dance thing, but... But it seems like there's something that is still missing here. So let me give you one more piece of the puzzle here. And this piece is related to history, another of the children of wisdom literature. There was this person that would have been a historical person in the time of Jesus and the the people that lived in the first century, the Emperor Cyrus the Great. He was a Persian emperor. And this person would have been endeared to the Israelites of Jesus' day. He would have been like a national hero to them. So why is that? So several hundred years before, when they were in exile in Babylon, it was Cyrus the Great who defeated the Babylonians, and then he allowed them to return to their homeland. He allowed them to rebuild the temple and to reestablish the worship of the Lord. So he had done these great things for the nation of Israel in the past. He would have been like a national hero. Let me tell you another uh, trivia about Cyrus the Great that, that you might not have known. It turns out that Cyrus is the only non-Israelite to be called the Messiah in the Scriptures. And so here it is from Isaiah, and this is chapter 45. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Now this word that the NIV translates as anointed here looks like this in the Hebrew. It is the word Messiah. That's where we get Messiah. So the literal reading of this passage is, this is what the Lord says to his Messiah, to Cyrus. So Cyrus would have been somebody that was uh, very endeared to the Israelites of Jesus' day, somebody that they would have wanted to learn more about. And so where would they turn 
other than the scriptures? What would have been their book of history that they would have turned to? And where they would have turned is the histories of Herodotus. So Herodotus was a Greek historian. He also was from the area of Lydia. He lived about 450 years before the time of Christ. He wrote extensively about Cyrus. And here's some things that he said. You probably haven't read through the the histories of Herodotus, I'm guessing, but you probably would be familiar with some of the things that he wrote. So uh, if you're familiar with the Battle of Thermopylae and how 300 Spartans stood up against a multitude of Persians, that comes from the writings of Herodotus. So this is what he said. He said when Cyrus became king of Persia, that Persia was just this small little nation, the little red circle on the bottom right, that was subjugated to the much larger and more powerful nation of Media. They had to pay annual tribute to Media. There was a general in the army of the Medians who had an axe to grind with his king. And so he sent a secret message to Cyrus offering a coup. And the message was, if you will bring your armies against the more powerful and larger armies of Media, when the armies meet, I will cause all the men loyal to me to join sides with you against the Medians. And so this happened. And so overnight, with this defeat of the Median army, Cyrus went from being the king of a smaller nation of Persia to being the king of the largest empire in that day. Now, if you look in the top left, this area that Cyrus is now in control of borders the nation of Lydia. We'll zoom in on that. Soon after Cyrus becomes uh, the emperor over this large empire, the king of Lydia, Croesus, the king who Aesop was one of his advisors, but Aesop had just died a few years before, decides to invade Cyrus, perhaps thinking this was an opportune time because maybe he was weakened from his recent battle with the Medians. But his invasion of Cyrus was unsuccessful. Now, if you look over to the left on the coast, the west coast of Lydia, there is this yellow region there called Ionia. In that region, there were these independent Greek city-states. They, they had their independence from Lydia, but they paid annual tribute to the king of, of Lydia. Before Cyrus counterattacked, before he invaded Lydia, he sent messengers. This is according to Herodotus. He sent these messengers to these kings of Ionia with this offer. I am expanding my kingdom into Lydia. If you will join with me, if you'll join my kingdom, ally yourself with me, then you'll maintain your freedom. You'll just begin to pay tribute to me as you once paid to, uh, to, to Croesus. However, if you ignore this offer, your fate will be the same as Lydia. You will be destroyed. And it turns out they ignored his offer. Now later, he invaded Lydia. He conquered Lydia. And then when he was victorious and conquered the capital city and set up his throne there in Sardis after he was victorious. Then these kings sent a message to him and they said, okay, we'll accept your offer. (laughs) It's a little late now, right? Now this is what Herodotus said that Cyrus said in response. He said, go back and tell your kings this. There was a fisherman who went down to the coast and he played his pipe thinking the fish would dance, but they did not. And so later he threw out a net, and when he had thrown them on the shore, they began flopping about. And he said, hey, your dancing is of no use now. The time to dance was before. And then he said this, go back and tell your kings, I played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. All right, so now let's pull in that unique piece of the puzzle again. Now we have a context for Jesus saying these words. So Jesus is looking for some comparison about what's going on in his day. And what's going on is he and his messenger, John the Baptist, are being rejected, right? So Jesus is expanding his kingdom. And he sent a messenger ahead of time, John the Baptist, and they were rejecting that offer. And so what is that like? And then he says the same words of Cyrus 500 years before. So 500 years before, there was this person called the Lord's Messiah. He was expanding his kingdom. He gave an offer through these messengers to join that kingdom. His offer was 
rejected or ignored. And so then later he said, from words of their own fabulist, we played the pipe and you didn't dance. Now here Jesus is, and he wants to make a comparison. And so he reaches back into history, probably history that they would have been very familiar with, and he says the same words that Cyrus said. We played the pipe and you didn't dance. That would have been powerful. They would have understand, understood that loud and clear, right? He said the same thing Cyrus did. Now, according to Herodotus, Cyrus went on to destroy those Ionian Greeks. And so perhaps then what's being said here in our passage is something very similar that Adam said to us about a week ago when Adam, or a couple weeks ago when Adam talked about the importance of responding to an RSVP before it's too late. Right? And so Jesus is going to say a very similar thing, thing to this at the end of his Sermon on the Mount when he says, talking about his second coming, he says, Many will say to me on that day, Did we not uh, prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons? And he will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Um, so listen, that is uh, my teaching for today. Thanks so much for allowing me to do this. I am going to, if you'll bow your heads and close your eyes, I will... Uh, Let the worship team come forward and I will pray over us. So we have just celebrated the season of Advent where we we, uh, commemorate the time when Jesus came to expand his kingdom on earth. And here we are 2,000 years later and Jesus is still expanding that kingdom. And so the question is, who are we in the story? Have we danced? Have we responded to his offer to join that kingdom? If so, he says, we, our position is greater than the greatest of Old Testament prophets. If not, I can't think of a better day than today. Now, if we have, if we have responded, then we are his current day messengers that he uses to share that offer to join his kingdom with a lost world that desperately needs to hear it. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your great word and how rich it is. Um, I thank you so much for coming 2,000 years ago to begin expanding your kingdom on earth and for this season where we celebrate that And so, Lord, I just pray that uh, if anyone is here that has not responded to that, that today would be the day. And I pray that for those of us who have, that we will be found faithful as your messengers to share that offer with a lost world. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.